first question we ask everybody who come on the show is, uh, when you first got to the NBA, who was the first person to bust your ass? <laughs> uh, Rick Smith. Rick Smith. Ooh, the Duncan Dutchman. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was the first person to give it to me because uh, it was my first game. I missed training camp with the Charlotte Hornets. They were trying to get my um, my contract right. So I missed all the training camp. So literally, when the contract was done, training camp was over with, and I flew straight to Charlotte. I got off the plane, and then they took me from the airport with my bags <laughs> straight to the team plane. Oh, yeah. I get on the plane, the first person I see is Kenny Gaddison, Muggsy Bowles, and LJ. I see them right there. And then I saw J.R. Reed at the time. And I didn't get a welcoming feeling at all. I mean, because I was holding, <laughs> cause I was holding the plane up from taking off to Indiana, which was the first game of the season. We played Indiana the next day. I was nervous as hell, man. You know, my first game coming out of Georgetown, but I knew I was prepared because playing against the Ken Bay and Patrick for all those years, I knew I was prepared for the league because I was going against them on the regular, so my confidence was there. But the anxiety and just anxious and ready to get it going. Yeah. So many butterflies in my stomach and everything. But anyway, long story short, we started the game. I ended up scoring 30, 13 points that game, the first game at Market Square Arena. That was an old Indiana arena. And uh, Reggie Miller, Rick Smith, they had a squad. And mm -hmm. uh, they beat us. They beat us at home. And I had to guard Rick Smith. And I was giving up about six, seven inches. You know, Rick Smith was a big boy. And yeah, with touch. Plus, I was about 250. Rick Smith had to be about 280. You know, he was bottom heavy, so hard to move him out of there. So he had to be about two inches. I was giving up about six inches and about 30 pounds. Yeah, he was like seven so he, he, he He gave it to me that game. <laughs> that game kind of broke the ice, and I, you know, got my feet wet in the league. For the next three, four weeks, I went on a tear, man. I was averaging <laughs> like 20 and 10 a game. I was like, oh, this is what this is about. Okay, I got this man. I figured it out. Yo, 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 live on location. Me and the blackest one still here in Orlando. Staying our asses safe at home. Hope y'all doing the same. But this one is special, y'all. This our big bro, man. The first one to welcome us into the fraternity with open arms. A legend in the game. Hall of Fame. One of the biggest and baddest to do it. This our big bro, Alonzo Morning. Appreciate you, fam. All right, OG. Yo, 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 man. I appreciate you, brother. Thanks for having me. Chesapeake VA. Yeah. Indian River High School. They got a GOAT, got a legend. Like, how was it? Was it another high school there that you would chose to go, or Indian River was the high school of your, your uh, time? Indian River was, was the high school uh, at that particular time because of the area that I was living in. I was staying with my foster mom. That was the closest high school to the neighborhood that I live in. It was called, the area was called Lambert's Point. Strawberry Lane was the area. And um, we could literally walk to school. That's how close we were. It takes us about 20, 25 minutes to walk to school, you know. But, you know, we walk up the train tracks and then a straight shot up Providence Road and then we hit the school. So it's pretty easy to get to. So either if you missed the bus, you had to walk to school. It's as simple as that. It took about 25 minutes. So let me ask you this. When you first started, when did you start getting good and, and noticing that you was pretty like, all right, I could be all right in this basketball thing? Was it grade school or like early in high school? When did it take off for you and start clicking? Well, I was 13 years old and uh, I got my first dunk. 
I was about 6'4", <laughs> 6'5". Damn. Yeah, I was about 6'4", 13 years old, 6'4". I got my first dunk at the uh, Indian River Recreational Center. I was in junior high school, and then after junior high school, we used to go to the rec center and hoop until basketball season started, and then we played junior high school, what have you, you know. But when I first dunked, I was like, okay, I'm getting better. And we were playing against, like, older guys at that particular time. We were always looking for the game against the grown men. Right. Because they were always physical with us. <laughs> but we were faster than them. And because I was long, I was blocking a lot of shots. I was just beat, you know, pinning stuff, you know. So, you know, once I came down, I came down on a break, and I just took off. And I was real athletic back then. I took off and stretched out and boom. And got the dunk. I actually shot myself. I wasn't planning on doing it. But after I got my first one, and then the run was over with, I went and tried to dunk again, was dunking again. <laughs> you remember you used to dunk, and then you used to get that black part right there on your finger right yeah, there? That little, good callus. That little callus right there. Yeah. All of that was black because I was barely getting over the rim. Yeah. So, uh, that's what did it for me, you know. And then after that, what really kind of solidified everything is when I was going to five-star basketball camp at the age of 15 years old. And I was going to all the five-star camps, and I was competing against all these guys, you know. And then, you know, I was doing work in the camp, and they had the Street and Smith rankings that came out. This is old school right here. The, the yeah, five star in the streets and still, these young boys don't know nothing about this. Blue Ribbon, Street Smith. You know, so yes. When the rankings came out and they had me ranked in the top 10, I was like, whoa, okay. You know, I must be putting in work. Mm. My coach used to have me watch this tape of you. Uh, the coach that coached me in high school was Afonso Ellis coach oh. and the Coca-Cola yeah. shootout. It was a 7-up shootout. 7-up shoot. It was a 7-up shootout. Yeah, in St. Louis. Like, and I used to watch this tape and study this tape all the time. He was like, I want you to watch this, both sides, both sides of the ball, blocking the shots, rebounding, scoring. And I used to have to study these tapes. Do you remember that, like, all that game, that big hype around that game of, of y'all playing against each other? Huge hype around that game. And I was looking forward to it because – Lafonso was one of those guys that was considered the best at that particular time, one of the best at that time. So we were ranked number two in the country. Our high school was ranked number two in the country. And I was like, well, in order for us to be the best, we got to play against the best. So we traveled to East St. Louis, played in the 7-Up shootout, and uh, we put in work, you know. Yeah. All our guys were ready to go. And I made it a point. That game, I remember, I know it was a long time ago, I made a point that game that I ain't want nobody to score. I ain't want nobody to get anything easy down low. So I was just beat. I yeah. was beat. I was beat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one yeah. of my favorite yeah. games to watch when I was younger. Oh, no doubt. I blocked a lot of shots that game, for sure. So how was it for you coming from, you know, VA, and you started out how you started out, then you rise to be the number one recruit? period, over dudes like, you know, Christian Leitner, Billy Owen, Sean Kemp, Stanley Rowe, like some legends, like, yeah. especially in hindsight, looking back at that, how was that for you in high school, you know, being the number one recruit? And I know D always asks this, but we know you went to Georgetown, but was it like, could you have gone to anywhere else in the country? I was the number one high school player in the country, and I think what separated me was what I did on both sides of the ball. I was averaging a triple-double in high school. So I was averaging 10 blocks. I averaged like 13, 15 rebounds a game. And I was averaging like 26 points, 27 points a game. So I was averaging a triple-double in high school. So that's what separated me from everybody else. I mean, I remember one game we were playing against Boo Williams All-Stars. We went to Philly. And we played against Brian Shorter. He went to Pittsburgh. I think he might have played in the league for a little bit, you know, but they had a squad. Philly's finest. We played against Philly's finest. Sonny Hill. Sonny Hill. Uh-huh. And I had like 22 blocks in that game. 
they kept coming in there? Kept, like, what? Oh, yeah, they kept coming in there. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about Christian Layton, yeah, he was amazing. Him and I actually still got a picture of him and I at Five Star Basketball Camp as kids, him and I both. Billy Owens, Sean Kemp, all of us. You know, you talk about the competition level was intense, especially at the Nike ABCD camps, mm-hmm. all the camps that we competed against, you know. But what separated me wasn't just the scoring. You know, it was my defense and rebound. Yeah. You know, so, yes, I, I could have gone to any school I wanted to go to, but the one that stood out for me was Georgetown, and the reason being, you know, God rest his soul, was, was John Thompson. John Thompson was, he was the X factor in, in pretty much, you know, all the schools that recruited me. And I had narrowed my schools down to five schools. It was Maryland, Bob Wade was there at the particular time, Bobby Crimmins at Georgia Tech, Terry Holland in Virginia, Bayheim at Syracuse, and then Big John at Georgetown. So, you know, I, I took all my visits. I had a blast at all my visits, had a blast. You know, back then it was, the business was different. But back then, boy, you, you, <laughs> you were able to really have some fun, yeah. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I remember, I remember Dennis Scott. I remember D. Scott when I went to Georgia Tech. I remember him taking me to see Anita Baker at concert. <laughs> and, now picture that three D sideline shouting yeah, with the, with the, taking you, you know, around, and, and then you know he took me to some other spots too. Yeah, 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 oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> we had a we had a good time, you know. And um, DC, Derek Coleman took me out, took me out in, in Syracuse. You know the list goes on, man. You know, but I'm gonna tell you, you know what stood out. What separated Georgetown from everybody else was all the coaches had an opportunity to come to my foster mom's house and speak to my foster mom about you know, what they had to offer and how my education and my basketball career would benefit from going to school at their university. So Terry Holland, Bayheim, Bob Wade, um, Bobby Crimmins, all of them came in and they said the same thing. I mean, everybody had their own day, but Big John requested to be the last one to come in. So he was the last visit to my house. And when I thought about the conversation that everybody else had had with me and my horse mom, it was basically, you know, we're going to give him this. He's going to have this. He's going to start. We're gonna make sure he's taken care of all of this stuff. They were they were promising the world. Big John came in the door. He was like, "Miss Three, we want your son to come to Georgetown, but he's gonna have to work for everything that he gets." Not one coach said that. Big John, right? Big John was like, "I'm not promising him a starting role. He's got to earn that." He's going to have to go to class. He goes to class, he's going to get his education. He said, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to make sure that he goes to class. If he does what he has to do, he's going to get his education. And my foster mom, being a retired school teacher, after all the yeah. business, she was like, That's the one. You know, it resonated. Yeah, it resonated, resonated her, you know, because, you know, she was all about education. And B. John came in and was like, Look, he's going to graduate, you know. And, I'll make sure he goes to class. Now, one coach said that. All these other coaches mm-hmm. talked about, you know, how, you know, they were trying to figure out a way yeah. where the family could be closer to me, you know, we'll make sure that he's, I know he wants to be close to home. So it was perfect. It was just a perfect uh-huh. marriage. And at that particular time, you know, like many of us, you know, mother and father, you know, weren't really in my life. At that particular time, you know, my mother and father had separated, you know, so I didn't have that consistent, you know, biological parent interaction. You know, they were there, they came to games and what have you, you know, but, you know, they had gone their separate ways, you know, and the street was my sole provider. So having Big John as a father figure at that particular time basically molded me and kind of changed my life. Yeah. 
because he kept me on the straight and narrow. You know, yeah. told me the things that I did not want to hear, but I needed to hear. And he would grab me and discipline me like he would his own son. So he kept me in line. You know, he kept me out of jail. You know, yeah. He kept me, he saved my life. You know what I'm saying? Because I was, I was fraternizing and associating with the wrong people at that particular time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. AI would tell you the same thing. You know, yeah. things that Big John did for us, he did for us because he treated us like like we were his his kids, his own child. And Yohan said to, like he was like protecting. He he always was protective over y'all. You can yeah. see it over the years of watching interaction or watching y'all on TV that how protective of all y'all, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, that he was. And he was yeah. like, he was like the dumb. He was like, Straight. I, he was like yeah. God out in D.C. Like, like all the drug dealers in D.C. was afraid to even associate with us when we went out because of Big John, because of his relationship with the streets. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And uh, I went through a situation where I had to testify for one of the drug dealers because I got caught in some government photos. You know, it was devastating to my career. It was on Ted Koppel Nightline and everything. It was a black eye on the university, you know. And for me, I put myself in that situation because I had gravitated toward the streets and was falling, you know, in the hands of the wrong people. John had to come to the rescue, you know, so he had to pick up the phone, make some calls to some dudes in the streets and say, yo, Go get my boy, bring Rafael to me, and let me have a conversation with him. I mean, that was the type of, that was the type of dude he was. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, so it was um, it was some um, some Godfather type stuff going on, you know, because of the respect that he had in the city of DC. DC streets worship Big John, right? They worship him in the hood. Everybody in the hood, Big John had somebody that he could call in the hood to find out what's going on with his with his guys, with his players in D.C. He always had eyes out there watching us. It was crazy. We couldn't do nothing. I didn't find it out about it. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because you hit the scene right away and took off, you know what I'm saying, breaking records, and you blew up. So how was that for you after being the number one in recruiting all those things? You get there, and you, you know what I'm saying, you definitely delivering. How was that? that microscope on you that quick? Well, you know what? It's, I mean, there was so much of an expectation of me being the number one high school player in the country coming out and in the Big East. So the Big East was the most, you know. Powerhouse. <laughs> it was the most emphasized conference in the country at that particular time because, yeah. you know, if y'all saw that ESPN special that they did on the Big East and they got it. Mm-hmm. The Big East is what kicked off ESPN. Yeah. Because they had right. Monday. Remember Big Monday? Yeah. Right. So Big Monday had this cult following. Everybody watched yeah. it. Everybody. Monday. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody. So, you know, the, the spotlight was on all the players in the Big East. So all the recruits, man, you got to think from the Northeast and all from the East Coast, all the great recruits, Kyle Boba, yeah, Syracuse, Seymour, yeah, yeah, Providence. I mean, you, I mean, you had it all, man. You had some the competition was amazing. Saint John, the Beast, so the Beast tournament was the hottest tournament. Yeah, you know, back then, everybody wanted to go to the Garden yeah. of the Beast tournament. I'm telling you, this what this what I grew up yeah. on. My mom watching Georgetown and DePaul yeah. Yeah. and everything. That's how I was introduced to basketball. Georgetown and DePaul with my mom. Then the Bulls got on once they got once I got a little older, but but it was DePaul basketball and Georgetown basketball on WGN. Yeah. So I had a lot of pressure on me to perform. So I did what I, I knew best. I defended and I rebounded. So as a freshman, I led the country in block shots. And then the rebounding and everything, because I, I wasn't even focused on scoring that much. I was amazingly athletic at that particular time. So, you know, my game developed over a period of time, but I still averaged like 14 points a game just off of hustle, yeah, pure hustle. Right. All kinds of rebounds and running the court. And, and plus, I had a bunch of seniors in my in my freshman year. I had a bunch of seniors around me that were just – just throwing me down. Yeah. So I was finished. Making it easy. Yeah, I was making it easy. You know what I'm saying? All I had to do was hustle. So that's where 
you know, I just gravitated towards my instinct. Not until my sophomore and junior years where my, my offensive game really just developed. It developed because of the um, the experiences that I had with Patrick in the summertime. You know, yeah, I was just going to ask you that. So Patrick would come back in the summertime just to keep his game right against me and the Kevin. So in the summertime, the games were fire at Georgia. Right. I mean, all the runs were fire. So all the guys in D.C., all the D.C. ballers used to come, used to play in the Kennedy League, but also they used to come to our runs. Yeah. Right. Runs was crazy in McDonald's. So, I mean, you talk about good runs back then. Man. It was amazing. So at any given time, it was me, Patrick, and the Kimbe that would get selected yeah. every time. Ain't nobody want to leave the court. So it was some war. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ain't nobody want to leave the court, you know. So – yeah, that's how that's how my game flourished. How was it watching Dikembe turn from nothing to something? Well, Dikembe instinctually was always a great rebounder. I mean, because Big John was like, "You motherfucking African, get me some <laughs> damn rebound! Get your ass on that glass and get me a rebound." <laughs> that's what Big, that's what Big Tumbo told. He said his name was Africa. I thought my name was motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Africa and motherfucker. Yeah, man. Anytime I heard the word motherfucker, I'd turn around and jump. <laughs> you know, so he called it as Africa. He's African. Get your ass on that glass and get me some rebounds. So what did Kimbe do? He got he got everything on the glass. So watching the Kimbe grow and develop. Like, you know, I saw his stroke improve over a period of time yeah. when he started free throws. Yeah. And he developed a little hook Jump shot up. inside. Oh, yeah, a little jump yep. inside. And then his instinct was just to grab boards. Yeah. And sure enough, you know, he ended up being his, what, second pick in the draft, something like that? Yeah. Behind LJ. And it was my junior year, you know, he ended up being the second pick in the draft. And uh, he came in and I think he ended up making the All-Star team. Yeah, he did. Like first year, yeah. made the All-Star team. First year, yeah, yeah. All because of rebounding and blocking shots. Rebounding blocking shots. Did y'all ever feel like y'all was like the college version of the Twin Towers, like Samson and, uh, and yeah. I can't like y'all? Yeah. Like, that was crazy. Yeah. yeah, it was. But you know what? You know what our biggest problem was? We didn't have enough playmakers. Off-the-dribble playmakers. Yeah. If we had more, like if we had an AI we would have won. That ain't fair. <laughs> Y'all gonna play all the defense. He can score all the points. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah, we didn't have anybody like that. We didn't have right. – we had some decent players, but we didn't have any, like, star players that could really get it done and create his own shot and get us a good shot or get into the lane and then dime into us. And, you know, we were going to tear the rim off. You know what I'm saying? We ain't have nobody. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it was hard to score against us, you know. But but it, it was very difficult for us to put up the numbers that we needed offensively in order for us to win the way we ex- we should have won, you know. Because we had me and the Kimba in the game, man. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, that's a coach's that's a coach's dream. Yeah, you know. Y'all co-defensive players of the year have been before. Like that's teammates. That's insane. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, no. That's insane. Has that ever been done any other time? No. With all the success that you had, like number one and everything was expected you, how was that pressure-wise for you? Like, did you let that pressure or was that a linger in your mind was like, hey, I got to do this every game? Well, it was. It wasn't no pressure. It was just instincts, man. You know, after a while, because of my coach, Bill Lasseter, who was a very defensive-minded coach as well. And, you know, he wanted me to claw up the middle. You know, and that's how I was taught at a very young age. And when I say young age is when ninth grade I played varsity. I started playing varsity in ninth grade, so I played four years of, four years of varsity. Mm-hmm. And my job in the ninth grade, I remember him teaching me clearly, is just make sure nobody scores. That's your job. We'll get you the ball, make sure that nobody scores. 
So that was kind of that seed was planted in me at a very early age, you know. So it was just instincts for me, yeah. you know, yeah. you to go out and shots, you know what I'm saying? You just kind of protect the pain. And I kind of, over the years, I just took it personal because it's, it's what I knew, it's what I was groomed for, yeah. I was groomed for. Yeah. And that's why I developed that reputation. How was it for you, like, after you, you know, you declare, and now you know you're going to the draft. How was it for you walking across that stage and shaking David Stern's hand? So I know for every for all of us, that's like, you know, a lifelong dream. And it's like that moment is a huge deal for us. How was it for you? That was a it was a dream come true, you know, because as a kid, you know, you watch that on TV for so many years. It's ingrained in your head to be one of those guys one day. You know what I'm saying? Straight you up. see it. And you say, one day I'm going a, I'm to a walk on that stage and I'm going to shake David Stern's hand, you know. So, blessing, so grateful for that moment, you know, because a lot went into that moment. A lot went into coaches, teachers, family members that made a significant investment in my life in order for me to experience that moment, you know. So, that moment, you know, I was celebrating the contributions of others that particular moment. You know, so God rest his soul, David Stern. He was a friend. Uh, I actually went to Africa with him. You know, our first basketball without borders trip was me, Dikembe, Patrick, and John Crotty. We went on that trip to Africa, and it was absolutely amazing back in 94. It was like 93 we went. So that moment coming into the league with David Stern welcomed me into the league, you know, it was a very memorable moment that I'll never forget. So now you you in the league your first year and you get your groove, but you see your squad. You see who you really got on your team. You got Larry Johnson and Reed and and all these guys. Like so, that first round of the playoffs when y'all playing Boston. What was you thinking going into that playoff series? <laughs> well, I was thinking like, well, we got hands full, but I also knew that we could beat them. But we had to beat them with speed. We can't get. We couldn't get into a, a half court yeah. game with them because yeah, they still had Kale. Yeah, <laughs> they had Mikael, They had Xavier McDaniel, yeah. X Man, and they had uh, Robert Parrish. Chief still was on deck. So Chief was still there. So they had so much size in that paint. That's how they dominated us when we slowed the ball down in the half court scheme of things. That's how they got us. So my goal is Muzzy's goal was LJ's goal, we were like, hey, we got to get up and down the court with these guys. So my job was to take the ball out fast. So whoever was closest to the ball, we took it out fast, and Muggs was gone. Mm -hmm. And Muggs basically told us, like, look, you know, <laughs> don't, don't let me beat y'all down the court. I want y'all in front. So we got a lot of easy baskets on them, and that's how we beat them. And then, you know, we get to a game five, and uh, it gets down to the last play. We drew up a play to get Dale Curry, Steph Curry's father, to get Dale the ball for a jumper. And they covered that play. And once they covered everybody else, I was the relief. I was the one that popped back from the out of bounds of the basket just to mm -hmm. keep the ball in bounds. Yeah. Pressure release, man. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was a pressure release. So when I caught the ball, I was like, well, damn, I'm in range. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So this is a shot that I took on a regular basis, you know. And I just say, I'm in range. It was by instinct to just, just let yeah. it fly. I went and try to look to pass it. I say, either it's going in or, you know, we're going to overtime. I let it fly. And when I let it fly, I saw it going through the net. I just fell straight back. <laughs> I remember that as a shorty. Right. I be seeing the replays of it like, yo. From the shot <laughs> to the celebration, they always showed that that's a big moment that I always will remember in NBA history in my memory book. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Back then, man, because of MJ, the game in the 90s, was on the cusp of just, just launching, taking off, you know, because of MJ. In the 80s, it was Magic and, and Bird. 
obviously they set the stage. But Michael, he created some excitement where more eyes started being on the game of basketball. And we, at that particular time, were this, we identified with the mm-hmm. younger crowd. Yeah, because right. we were an expansion yeah. franchise. Our colors were yeah. cool, teal, yeah. purple. Yeah. And we had pinstripes on our jerseys. And, and you had little Muggsy who could look all kids yeah. out of eye. So you had LJ, who was very popular coming out of UNLV. UNLV was a hot team, you know, back in college. You know, they were just like the bad boys. Everybody loved Grandmama. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and then you had Grandmama, you know. So we had a lot of attention on our team. So it was exciting basketball back then in the 90s. It really was. And very physical play back then. You know, I think a lot of those oh, yeah. players, a lot of those players back then during the 90s, we were playing right now, Jesus Christ. Because of the physicality is gone, you know, the points that we'd be averaging would be astronomical. In your 49th game, you the all-time leading scorer in block shots in Charlotte history? I think something like that. 49th yeah, game. Yeah. That's how young the franchise, not only the players, but the franchise really was. That's how young the franchise was. Like I said, we had a young expansion franchise, you know, so... It, it was exciting to see us. You know, we, we were new, we were fresh on the scene. We had great, young, charismatic players, you know, and we had a run-and-gun team, you know, a very exciting team to watch. We had a very exciting team to watch, you know. And then we had this passing game offense where it was just movement, 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 and then we just got the ball out of the back. We got the ball out of, the, out of bounds and running. We were running because of months, and we were fun to watch. We really were. We were fun to watch. Tell me this, how was it when you got to Miami? How different was that from from anywhere you had ever been? Being from Virginia, going to Georgetown, playing in Charlotte, then you get to Miami. Like literally, I mean, obviously we all know how Miami is different from that. How was that like a culture shock to you though? So uh, I'm I'm gonna tell you, man, once you get a chance to uh, come here for the first time and take a, nice deep breath of this fresh air it really makes you feel like you're on vacation brother <laughs> so, hey listen that's the funniest thing i say the teams i play it's, it's three teams i played for where i felt like me being from chicago always driving to and from price i'm like oh am i like on vacation it was, yeah, it was yeah. miami Orlando and Phoenix. Just the scenery is so much different than what we used to growing up around the trees, the desert, cactus, palm trees, all of that. I was like, I used to always feel that way. So the weather was, is absolutely amazing. And then the atmosphere, the different cultures, the food, the beauty, you know, that expands across South Florida, you know, multicultural beauty. And on top of that, you yeah. know, more importantly, you know, you got a franchise here that's a winning franchise, you know, and you have a franchise that takes a lot of pride in giving back to the community. You know, you got a franchise that is fair and does everything it possibly can to make sure that our, that its players have everything they need in order to, to win. It's as simple as that. You know, it's a winning mentality. You know, we don't, each year, we go into each year, and it starts from the top. Mickey Harrison. We don't have rebuilding years. Every year we try to win. I don't care what we have. I don't care what right. we have on our roster. We try to win every year, and that's a great mentality to have, you know, because you don't mm-hmm. settle for anything less than the best, you know. And all the guys that come through here uh, is held to a higher standard. And on top of that, I, I mean, you can interview all the guys that have come through this program, which which you have to, you understand that when you come here, we hold you to a higher standard because we want you to be the hardest working, best conditioned, most professional, toughest, most disliked, nastiest team in the NBA. And we hang our hats on it, you know? And that's the hardest working, most professional, best conditioned, most disliked, toughest, nastiest team in the NBA, you know. So it is what it is, you know, and, and I don't know any other organization that holds you to that standard, 
And I've been to period. No, I've been to Charlotte, I've been to New Jersey, and none of them held you to that scale. Yeah. I've been I've been uh I got what is it, six, seven, I don't know how many, but I've been to a few more teams than that. And I tell you what, like you remember when I came that it was the best thing in the world for me because being around the uh, you know, not talking bad about any other organizations, but like you said, Miami is unique in what it has to offer and the way that they, you know, uh the culture is and the way that they train and, and have their players, especially the young players. I feel like if if you get drafted or you get an early start there in Miami, I feel like you have a, a better chance at having a sturdy career than somebody who doesn't. Just because you get that whole that platform, you get started out with a good base of how to be a pro. Like, you're not going to go anywhere else where it's going to be harder. You may go where somebody work as much, but nobody works harder than what y'all do. Uh, uh, but not just that. You you develop the right mentality of what it takes to be a pro. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? When you first come here, you're not tainted by anything else. Here, you get, right. you get all the things that you need for you to understand how to be a pro. You get what I'm saying? So Absolutely. understand that, first of all, you're drafted into this league because of your talent, okay? Now you got to put in the work. So being in the best shape of your life is key for your talents to flourish. So, and Pat always calls it, Pat Riley always calls it, Hussein bullshit. So Hussein, you think about Hussein, he worked out for four years just to run one, one, to run one race. Think about it. All right. So you got to train to to run to be able to run that same race every time. You got to get in the best shape of your life to want to run that one race. You know, so that one that one race is to be to be prepared physically for the rigors of the season. You know, and I think that's when you when you develop that mentality. It gives you somewhat of an edge. It really does, you know. So that's why I think of a guy like Jimmy Butler. I feel like he's he was made for our DNA simply because you know he understands the importance of what we sell here. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you said Hussein Bolt shape. All I could think about is every day after practice when McAdoo, Bob, big OG Bob McAdoo, beat one of us in the shooting drill. His celebration was this Hussein Bolt every time. <laughs> and Mac still could shoot it though. He was winning games. Oh, Mac is crazy, man. To this day, you don't want to shoot with Mac. I think mean, uh-uh. about seven in there. Yeah, you still don't want to get on the court with him because he can still stroke. So. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you about the Knicks and Heat rival. You in Miami and you got Pat Riley who just left New York and you absorbed the beef. And not only do you absorb the beef, it's like you got old teammates that's playing on the Knicks team and your brother is playing on this team. How was that, that rival for y'all? Because them series was like some of the best series ever. The most intense series of basketball games I've ever played in my life was against the Knicks. And it's all Pat Riley's fault because he built this bad blood. <laughs> he built this bad blood between both organizations. And he'll admit it. He, he did it. <laughs> and he had his he had his DNA implemented in both organizations. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then he left and he established the same mentality in Miami. So when we played against each other, it was just like two people's <laughs> button heads, you know. But I'm going to tell you, man, and before every season started, I would I would put an X on the calendar of all the Knicks games. And those are the games that I used to really truly get up for, let alone the ones in the gardens. Because, I mean, the things that they were spewing out of the stands in the gardens was no joke. It got you fired up. It really did. It just got it kind of raised the hair on your back. It really did. It was no joke. And That's a garden I know. I had the utmost love and respect for my brother Patrick, but I wanted to tear his head off. I really you could see. It. You could <laughs> see. It. We went to dinner the night before, and and Pat Riley hated the fact that we went to dinner the night before. But we will always go to dinner the night before. Him and I. And then at jump ball, we were two different people. We were ready to rip each other's head off. And that's what, we're, that's what winning was all about, man. It was about winning. 
you know. Yeah. And I would knock them on the floor. I'd step over top of them, you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know. But after the game, I'd hug him and my love yeah, after the world. game. But, but during the game, you know, it yeah. was fire and fury, my man. It was fire and fury. I yeah. think how hard me and Q used to play against each other, they used to be like, nah, y'all just going to play with each other because y'all are tripping. <laughs> y'all going too hard at each other. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, well, that's what it was about, man. It was about winning for us. I think a lot of that was ingrained in us, and obviously at an early age in Georgetown, you know, through Big John. You know, Big John was like, he always told me, he's like, listen, I don't want no butterflies on my team. He said, I want mm. a bunch of bulls. He said, give me a bunch of bulls. I win with some bulls. They said, I can't yeah. win with no butterflies. No doubt. Big fact. Why did my block have to be the 1,000 block? Why I couldn't be like 999, 997, <laughs> maybe 990? Like, I'm talking about why I had to be the milestone block, the 1,000 block, the best and part, I get a photo. The best, the best part about it was the was the photo and the call afterwards between Jeff and me to say, let them know that was my 1,000. I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that greatly. You're in the right place at the right time. You made history, brother. Oh, man, I appreciate it. It's all right. <laughs> hey, I got one question, right? Because you know my dogs is D-Wade and D-Wright. And we talk often, especially D. Wright, about the year that y'all went to the chip, how focused you were and how you was on them. And yet, like one of your battle crowds, like, you ain't about to mess up this chip for me. Like, dude, you would tell whoever needed to hear that, you would let them know that, like, y'all not, like, we gonna get this done. Like, just tell me how that year was for you and, and how how fulfilling that was to get that chip. Well, you know what? It's, it's, the opportunity was there. I could smell it. I could see it. And, you know, I was trying to keep all the guys on the right track mentally because in order for us to win it, we needed everybody, even the guys on the bench. We needed everybody mentally into it. And we didn't want them to take this opportunity for granted because, you know, those moments ain't promised, man. You know, and it, you don't know when you're going to get back there again or if you'll ever get back there again. You know what Not I'm right, saying? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so when, you, when you're there, you got to seize the moment. You got to leave it all out there. You know, some of the guys didn't like me because I got in their faces. <laughs> I really did. I got in their faces a lot of times. And I was like, yo, man, stay focused. Right. I know you want to go to this party. I know you want to go to the club or what have you. But I'll do all of that with you after we win this chip. Right. You know what I'm saying? I'm buying drink. Right. Let's win the chip first. You know? Right. They, and some of them didn't want to hear me, but I stayed on. And then, you know, once we all celebrated, man, that special moment, June 20 of 2006, you know, it just, it was so fulfilling because ultimately in order for you to accomplish anything in life, certain sacrifices have to be made in order for you to do it. Mm-hmm. Anything in life, yeah. anything in life. It just don't happen, you know, unless you buy a lottery ticket and yeah, yeah you're right. special. But life ain't like buying a lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. Life ain't like that. Right. Yeah. You got to put work in. Right. That's all. You got to put the work in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, anything in life worth having is worth working for, you know, so, and making this necessary sacrifice for us. So I try to keep everybody focused on that task at hand. And I love all my brothers that helped me get there, man. You know, I was just a small part of the puzzle, you know, and to bring an example of, you know, Shaq and I never really had the relationship that I expected us to have until we were teammates and we won one together. Yeah. And then when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame, I got a call. I got a call from him and he said, yo, man, I want you to be one of the presenters for the Hall for me. That's dope. And, and I was like, whoa, you know, you want me to go on stage and present for you? He said, yeah, brother. You know, and I said, well, I ain't thinking you thought that much of me yeah. for me to be one of those guys, yeah. you know? So, so it was myself, Isaiah, and I think it was Doc on there. And I'm going to tell you, man, it was, it was a tremendous honor, you know. So that right there, Cap, we built even more of a bond after all that. And then with all the guys on that team, man, we built more of a bond, you know, because of that experience. You were in Miami, and not only did you fell in love with the organization, you fell in love with the community. Right. Now, when you feel love community, you start this dope thing called Zoe Summer Groove. Lord have mercy. 
Lord of mercy. Tell us about Zoe Summer Groove, how you started it. And do you remember the first time I came to Zoe Summer Groove? <laughs> First of all, I don't remember the first time we came to summer, but I do remember when you came. Oh, you got the chicken pox. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> See, he was that's because like he was there. We remember we stayed at your house the week before, did okay. all the kids camps and everything, the leading up into it. And that's what got him sick. He missed the whole real yeah. weekend. He missed the part of, you know, the the the, the festival. Yeah. We did the we did the community yeah, stuff. My people was taking care of you. Miss Sherry, But listen, the groove was a staple in the community. We did the groove for 20 years. And uh, I'm going to tell you, the thrill and the satisfaction of the groove permeated throughout the community. And the reason being is because we created an atmosphere, festive weekend of events. Unbelievable weekend. Awesome. All-star basketball game, golf tournament, a gala, dinner, uh, family day where it's like a carnival type of atmosphere, and games, prizes, just a very festive type of atmosphere with radio stations on location. So basically what it was, and it was, it was a four or five-day weekend, then we had a comedy show, concert. It, it was spectacular weekend. It was almost, yeah. almost mimicked All Star yeah. Weekend for the NBA. It did, but it did. and then we had parties every night. Every night was a different party. So, so in all of the events that we did, every event generated money towards impoverished communities and children and family in low socioeconomic communities. And what? My focus was was to try to make sure that we brought people from all races together and cultures together uh, mm -hmm. to give back and understand that their support is helping to change the lives of those that were less fortunate. And uh, I, I was able, over all those years, I was able to raise north of $25 million over all those years. That's amazing. Yeah, I was able to, to give back to the community on so many different levels, you know, and through that, we were able to build this amazing youth center in the community where we provided educational opportunities for children and families. Not only that, it was a safe haven for kids to keep them off the streets. And at the same time, we provided pro bono services to the adults of the families, whether it be a computer literacy job training, how to fill out an application. We had a clinic, a free clinic inside the center as well. You know, so now we've demolished that place and we're building a state-of-the-art yeah. 56,000 square foot facility. We went from 18,000 to wow. a 56,000 square foot facility. It's an $18 million project that we're building as we speak. In, you know, in the next 14 mm. months and 14 months, We'll be we'll do our ribbon cutting and hopefully you all can bring your podcast down and get some footage of that. Hey man, listen, I was just about to say first salute to you on that and continue success. But I wanna say we were there either right after Overtown was built or when it was just opening. I don't I don't know if we were at the ground open. We were really yeah. there when it first got done for one of those events. So like to see that and to see how much, you know, how much you impacted the community like over all those years, like first. It was an all-star game. Yeah. Like, literally, you have to understand, yeah. we came in in 2000. We got, this is how it went for us. We got drafted. We went to L.A., did the whole, you know, after the draft thing with the team, me, get tied and do pictures and stuff, media. The very next thing that we did was all summer group. This was our introduction to the NBA. So we came there, remember, we got to stay at your house, by the way. We ended up using a soda machine with no coins, just getting you on the side of the joint. I was like, the jet this skiing. was a dream. So we get there, <laughs> and then it's like, it's legit an all-star game. You had everybody there. This was right after Vince did the amazing twin-leg dunk contest. Vince was there. T-Mac was there. Marbury, Iverson, hey, Twan yeah. Walker, Larry Hughes. The names went on. It was crazy. GP, Pat Ewing. It was just like, what is happening right now? We was the young boys because, you know, we were with Jeff, and, you know, you got us down, and it was like, oh, we down here. This was the craziest weekend of my life. You, you know what's so crazy? And I, and I got to go after this, man, but 
the long and short of it, I'm going to tell you, you know, guys don't play ball in the summertime like that. Nope. No. No. They really don't. They don't get together and play ball like that anymore. It's crazy, man. You know, they got their own individual workouts, which is great. But guys don't get – they don't play ball in the summer like that. Anymore. You have to run. You got to look and search and try to find, well, who's running, you know, so – it's amazing to me, you know, and I felt like it was a great opportunity for us to bond as players, you know, because we're adversaries during the season and going against each other during the season. But bringing all of my colleagues from the NBA, bringing them to South Florida, which was not a difficult sell to get them to come down my and for them to know that we had, you know, all of these, you know, a very festive atmosphere and parties every night. You know, it really gave us an opportunity and gave our guys an opportunity, you know, to see what we had going on down here in Miami. And it showed other guys how to create their own philanthropic endeavors in their own cities as well so they could give back as well, you know, because that's what the key to it all was. You know, yeah, I wanted to have a good time. I wanted to have a good time, but I wanted guys to understand the importance of giving back and changing the lives of others, you know, because these are our fans. It definitely was bigger than that. That's what I got from it. It was way bigger than just a party. <laughs> millions and millions and millions of dollars with comedy shows, concerts, basketball games. We filled the arena. It was just like a regular mm-hmm. NBA game. We filled the arena. Yeah. You know, the family day and everything. You know, it was pretty amazing festival mm-hmm. weekend. You know, I appreciate y'all being a part of it. Hey, listen, we just want to, I got to say to you, Land, we appreciate you from day one, man. man, Bring us in your crib, some young chumps that, you know, you let hang out with you. We looked up to you. And since that day, you straight been a picture of perfection and how to be a pro. And we watch from afar. We may not talk all the time. And I know you hear from Jay, but we watch and we salute you, man. You showed us how to impact the community, how to be a leader in our community and how to impact. So we appreciate that. You definitely was one of the examples we used. That's what we need to do, man. We're here to lift each other up. I'm happy to see you all doing your thing, man. This is, uh, I've heard a lot of great things about your podcast, you know, and i just been trying to wait till I can carve out the right time, you know, to be a part of it. You know, but truly, it's an honor, my brothers. I love y'all, man. I wish y'all man. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, OG. We appreciate you, man. All this podcast blows up. Players Tribune.com